0: Now, our latest guest in the Top 5 Books podcast is someone you'll all be very familiar with. He is, of course, the Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure and Reform. Uh, Pascal Dunne, you're very welcome. Uh, Thanks, Shane. Thank you for having me on your programme. Oh, great to have you. Now, every time I meet you, you've always read some new book and seen some new TV uh, drama. And as well as I know you're a a very involved, hands-on parent, as well as being Minister for Finance, How the hell do you find the time to read books? I have got into a lifelong habit
1: that at the end of every single day I read. And I just read for 15 or 20 minutes before uh, I try to head off to sleep. And I also do quite a bit of travel with my job. And amidst all the briefing papers that uh, are supplied to me in copious quantities, I always have a book with me.
0: Okay. That lifelong habit, was was reading a big thing in your family growing up? Reading the newspaper
1: was a huge thing in my family growing up and every single day would begin with the uh, newspaper coming in the letterbox, my dad reading it cover to cover and then my mum reading it. And uh, the other thing that's had a very big impact on my life but also had a huge influence then on my reading was as a, a young kid and up until being an adult I had chronic asthma. And that meant that sport as an outlet for me uh, wasn't available to me at all. Uh, So you try to find other things that you want to pursue, and reading was it for me. Thankfully, that's all passed now in terms of my asthma, and the great legacy I carried from all of that then was just the interest in reading for many, many years now.
0: Uh, Hardback or or paper or Kindle? Do you have a preference? Oh, paper. There's only one way to
1: go, paper. I mean, I've been... Her to say in private that I think ebooks and Kindles could pose a grave threat to the civilization of our of our world. <laughs> but that's only a view I express in private, share, And I'm sure you won't tell anybody. We won't <laughs> tell anyone. Your secret is safe with <laughs> us. No, uh, the big debate for me for so long was paperback or hardback. Yeah. Uh, and I've come to realize now there's a few books actually that you do want in hardback. Yeah. Uh, but paperback then all the way.
0: Good. Okay. Listen, let's get to uh, some of your choices. Let's get to your first choice. I suppose when I saw it, I kind of went, ah, yeah, that's a. A good one and maybe one that, with hindsight, yeah, I can see why you picked that. The Time of My Life by Dennis Healy. He was a, a politician of huge, huge stature. A lot of our younger listeners may not remember him from the, the 60s and 70s and, and 80s in British politics. Very uh, trademark uh, eyebrows and trademark wit as well. That's it. And uh, so just to fill your listeners in a little bit more, Dennis
1: Healy would have been part of the great generation of post-World War II British politicians. So uh, he was involved in the landings in Italy in World War Two. After that, became a member of the trade union movement, worked in the British trade union movement. And whilst the, the norm then, and I guess is again now, he then became a member of the parliamentary party of the British Labour Party. He was secretary of defence for six years when the UK was trying to cope with what its new role in the world was going to be post the Suez crisis. And then he was Chancellor for the Exchequer when Britain applied for and needed an IMF loan in the late 1970s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember why I came across this book. It was published in 1989, but I read it in the early 90s. And it was the book that got me interested in a career in politics and in politics. Why so? Because he talked about politics as being a vocation. He talked about that if you're lucky enough to benefit in any way at all, from society or from your community. He bestowed upon me the idea that you should try and find a way of making a contribution back. And uh, I believe ultimately, you know, what politics should be about is trying to be a servant of the people. And that's what that book is about. And he grappled with huge issues. And he, he talks in great detail regarding the toll some of it took upon him. And he's also one of the great what-ifs of British politics Mm. because he never became leader of the Labour Party. He stood against Michael Foote in the early 1980s. Michael Foote then became leader of the Labour Party and the weakness of the Labour Party then is one of the reasons Margaret Thatcher was so electorally successful. And his book is about life as being a politician, life as a cabinet minister and what's involved in that, but there's also so much in it about books, about art, Yeah, because he was history. into a lot more things than Yeah, politics, about his painting and, and his family. He was a great photographer. And uh, I wrote to him after I read the book, just saying what a great book it was. And at that time then, and I still am now, I'm a great fan of crime fiction. And I wrote to him in the letter, you know, what an amazing book. And you've also done so much to try and get some authors published. And he wrote back to me. And I still have that framed letter on my desk now well in well. the Department of Finance. And the letter is very short, it's so short I can recite this. It. it just goes, Dear Pascal, thank you for your most wonderful letter. Full stop. I hope you have as most wonderful a career in politics as I have had. Full stop. Yours sincerely, Dennis Healy. Yeah. And it's typed out. And uh, I got that letter when I would have been uh, you know, probably just starting off in college and still there now.
0: Okay, fantastic. I mean, he was kind of on on the right of the Labour Party. He would have been sort of centre left by political instinct. He was kind of seen as sort of a technocrat, you know, very much an expert in in the areas that he was ministering. Do you slightly would you have modelled your career on him a little bit on your your politics? On him, do you think? I think
1: I'd be very lucky if I could compare myself to somebody like him. Um, one of the things he took—it's so evident from the book and this is a book that was published now in 1989, Mm -hmm. Uh, so it would be a new book, I think, to some of your readers, is he talks about the intrinsic value in trying to do your job well if you're a politician. And
0: that's something I've taken really seriously. Okay. Um, Let's go from... uh a Labour heavyweight to the choice of a Tory Prime Minister for your next book uh, Skippy Dies by Paul Murray because famously uh, yeah, David Cameron David Cameron I was that, yeah. pictured with a copy of this yeah. book when it was <laughs> at its height I'm not suggesting Paul Murray is a, is a Tory at all <laughs> actually Paul Murray is um, of course he lives across the road from me he lives the next road yeah. uh, down from you he's a, a resident of, of Fittisborough but this book was huge at that time I think and it was I had, five or six years it ago it did. Yeah. and I
1: had to think really hard about what I was book I wanted to pick because like, I think Irish fiction is in a vibrant and unbelievably positive condition at the moment. I think writers like Donald Ryan, Louise O'Neill, mm. Sarah Baum. I think we're underestimating just how lucky we are, like John Boyne. These are all magnificent writers at their peak now. But I tried to think of a single book and I picked this book, Skippy Dies by Paul Murray, I've been praising this book for a long time before Paul Murray moved into our local community, just to, just to make the I, point. I was <laughs> suggesting it was a, it was <laughs> a, it, it is an unusual constitu- uh, coincidence. <laughs> All right. This is a massive book. It's over 600 pages long and it's about what happens to Skippy and his friend Ruprecht. And it's in a boarding college somewhere in the south side of Dublin called Seabrook College. And it's set in the peak of the tiger madness. And it's about loneliness, it's about friendship, it's about technology, and it's about really sad things. And even now, I look back on all of the novels that I've read over many years up to now, and it just stands out. Like, I think this book is a masterpiece. Mm. And I think in particular, it's a comic masterpiece. It will make you laugh, it'll bring a tear to your eye. And uh, Paul's gone on to do great things since then. This was his second novel but this is a novel that is going to stand the test of time.
0: There's an edge to it as well, isn't it? There's a kind of a... Even though it, it it's hilarious and his writing, I've read some of his other books, his writing can be brilliantly funny. There's a dark side to it, though. There's as a I real
1: understand. dark side out of it. And when I was thinking about why I was picking this book for you today, I was having a look back at the book and there's one line in it that is quoted again and again by others who've written about the book. And that line is, our universe is actually built out of loneliness. And this ties into what happens to Skippy and his great love, Laurie. But actually, I think the great contribution of Paul Murray and all that he has done is that while he acknowledges that, his writing is... He does more than acknowledges. He really pierces that kind of a truth. His writing is so warm. It's so based on empathy. The characters that he creates are so real that as dark as his writing is at times, the flip side of it is this wonderful empathy for all he writes about. And uh, this is just a wonderful novel.
0: Mm. I think you're roughly the same age as Paul. You're both a little bit younger than me. Is that a factor in a book if there's kind of cultural reference? And obviously you're from Dublin. Is that a, an additional draw if there's kind of cultural reference points? Was that a factor in this book or yeah. could this book have been said anywhere? No, as far as you're ve- concerned? very
1: much so. And uh, I think for a while I definitely struggled with Irish contemporary literature because it spoke of an Ireland and spoke about it in a way that just I did not recognise And I think in many ways, our kind of genre fiction, like our crime fiction writers, like Tana French, even our young adult fiction, was way ahead of so-called contemporary fiction in recognising the Ireland that we all live in. And this is why people like Paul Murray and also Donald Ryan, they've more than caught up with all of this. They write about an Ireland that is, one, I recognise and one I really feel about so deeply, but in a great quality to their writing. It's about far more than Ireland. And to tell you a little story about Skippy Dyes, so when we go along every month to our meetings of European finance ministers, which is a thing called ECOFIN and then Eurogroup, we all sit around this massive table, and who you sit beside is determined by where your country is in the alphabet. So I sit beside the Greek finance minister, and he was telling me recently he just finished off the latest Paul Murray novel, The Zero and the Mark, and how much he enjoyed us. Wow. So I have my Greek counterpart raving about how good a writer Paul Murray is, which shows that in the particular lies the universal, and this is what Paul Murray can do.
0: That's interesting. Fascinating stuff. So your first two choices, uh, The Time of My Life by Dennis Healy and Skippy Dies by uh, Paul Murray. Let's get to your third choice. This is a book, um, it got critical acclaim but I suppose it got a fair bit of criticism as well at the time when it came out. Any Human Heart by William Boyd. I'll put my hands up and say I haven't read it. I did watch the TV dramatisation of it a a, a few years ago. The central character, it's a fascinating style of book because it's done in kind of, I suppose sort of diary form and He's an interesting character. Um. Exactly. No,
1: and uh, it was part of a TV series there on BBC there a number of years ago. And before it started on the telly, I got a copy of this book to take away with me on holiday. And it gripped me so much, I stayed up until the early hours of a morning to finish it off. I read the entire book in two days. And it's about the life story of a character called Logan Mount Stewart. And basically, through telling the story of his life, it tells the story of the last century. So he starts off being born in Uruguay, talks about his upbringing there. He goes from there to a public school education in England, to Paris, to the Spanish Civil War, to New York. In between that, he's a spy for a while. And he tells the story of his life, which is the story of the last century. And William Boyd's one of my favourite novelists, and he's actually done this in a couple of other books. Most notably, a book that preceded this called The New Confessions. But Any Human Heart is just a masterpiece. Mm. One of the things Boyd does is he fictionalises real-life characters. So Joyce is in us, Hemingway's in us, Virginia Woolf, different members of the British royalty. And it's just a magnificent it's an extraordinary life
0: book. Book that he lives, isn't it?
1: It is, and it's one of the... I'd love to know more about William Boyd because he's written and me, some. I'd say he's one hell of a character because yeah. he's written now around three books that are like this, which makes you me think.
0: There's a bit of autobiographical this is in
1: this. It makes me think if he can bring to life so vividly all these different multiple identities that are all sustained by the, the thread that was the last century. This man has had one hell of a life. I if, he's, it, if he's half he ever,
0: as successful uh, with women as Mount Stewart is in this book, if he ever publishes an autobiography, <laughs> it'll be one that will require careful reading. It, it definitely will. That theme that runs through it, and, and I suppose you get it a bit from Dennis Healy's book as well the multiplicity of self, because he lives, and actually this is captured in, in the dramatization because they actually have three different actors. It's yep. like it's the different lives, the different parts of his and you get that with Dennis Healy as well.
1: You sure do, and I think it. it's It's one of the things that really draws me to William Boyd's writing. He manages to imagine so many different forms of life so vividly. But there is a common theme between this and the Dennis Healy book. The prominence of great events, of world wars, of how great public shocks can irrevocably change the direction of private lives. And one of the things in particular, the Healy book, has always made me believe that if... You want to be try to become a politician, and I would encourage everybody to try and get involved in politics. I'd encourage people, if they have any interest in politics, to get involved in it and try to become a councillor or a TD. But whenever people approach me about it and ask them, should I give politics a go, I always tell them, do something first. Do something completely different first. Because if you end up in public life and if you're lucky enough to be in it for a while... You're all the better asses if you've done tons of other things beforehand.
0: It does make me, an, um just before we move on, it's something I do wonder about. I, I mean, it's not like it's not like you want a world war or a Spanish Civil War to happen, or or maybe, you know, because obviously, it's life is better if those things don't happen. But I do wonder about our generation, and even particularly the generation coming afterwards. You know, life is relatively straightforward, relatively easy in terms of, I'm not saying there aren't challenges there, but there aren't those great events. Does that make us less able to cope with the challenges then that do arise? Maybe as politicians even. Well,
1: famously, Bill Clinton was given to wonder sometimes during his two terms of office, what it would have been like if he'd had to respond back to a great crisis. Because he was president of America across a period of great a relative calmness Mm -hmm. now in retrospect. And he made the point himself on a number of occasions that great presidents are defined by, great presidencies are defined by the scale of challenge they have to meet. I'd feel very differently, actually, about where we are now because I think any of us who are involved in public life, particularly the economic dimension of us, and anybody involved in thinking about it or writing about it, such as yourself and all your colleagues in journalism, I think the events from 2007 up to 2011, you know, 2011 and 12, you know, tested the mettle of anybody who was involved in public life. And actually, much of what has happened since then in a non-economic context, so what is happening with politics at the moment, is way short, for example, of the spread of the Cold War or way short of the development of communism or potentially fascism. But it is going to provide a test to politics, mm. politicians who want to stand by the centre, but I think economically, definitely, I think we've all been well-tested now.
0: We have. OK, our guest, as you'll recognise from his voice, is uh, Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance, Public Expenditure and uh, Reform. We are going through his top five books. Uh, so far, he has chosen The Time of My Life by Dennis Healy, Skippy Dies" by Paul Murray, and A Human Heart by William Boyd. Your fourth choice is an interesting one, uh, Ireland and the Global Question by Michael O'Sullivan, which I think I'm right in saying came out just before the economic crash happened. But... It does still stand a test of time, doesn't it? It did
1: and this was this book was published actually in 2006 and to this day it's the finest book I have ever read on the what I would refer to as the political economy of Ireland.
0: Why, why is it so because good? Because
1: he identified more so than anybody else I've ever come across that globalisation, and if I take a step back, you know, to say what that terrible word is, globalisation is the way that the economy of the world has now become so integrated. Mm. So national economies are now intertwined. And, of course, people and capital, though more so capital than people now, have the ability to move in a way that would have looked impossible 100 years ago.
0: It's become a dirty word, though, hasn't it?
1: It has become, very much so. And uh, as a concept, it has been largely discredited. Maybe not largely discredited, mostly discredited in many democracies across the world. I take a very different view to it on that topic. But the reason why Michael O'Sullivan was so prescient is he made the point that this concept was at the heart of the Irish economic story and society, that we had consciously opened ourselves up to the external economy through membership of the eurozone, membership of the single market, development of a transatlantic trading relationship, and then culturally and through our society had made our society so porous. And the key point he was making was that we did this at a time of great calmness and moderation. We did this at a time in which things were going well. And he asked a simple question. How will we cope if the clouds get dark? Mm. And of course, a year later, this is what happens. And I, his book and his thinking is at the heart of much that still matters now.
0: I suppose the answer is we... We did cope. I mean, it was horrendous, but we did cope and we didn't turn our back on the rest of the world. We actually said, look, this is the path we're going on. There's going to be some pain, but we're staying on that path. Is that what you agree? it is. And uh, at
1: great cost to private lives, to go back to that bit we were talking about with Dennis Ely, what happens when public events and private lives collide, at great cost to private lives this happened, But I strongly believe, actually, that uh, those values were at the heart of how Ireland got through great difficulty. And I believe that the values of openness, trying to make the case for free trade, of the benefits to a society, of doing integration well, the benefits to an economy, of being able to sell abroad well, I think will be at the heart of how Ireland can navigate the next Mm. 50 years.
0: Does it keep you awake at night when you think that we are like a cork bobbing around in the ocean a little bit? I mean, we are a very small country and we have embraced that globalisation. It makes us very vulnerable to external shocks. Even if we hadn't got ahead of ourselves and lost the run of ourselves, we would still have been in a frightful mess because of the global uh, meltdown.
1: Yeah, and you know, Gordon Brown once famously promised an end to boom and bust. And uh, I have learned that no politician should commit to that. There will be further global economic shocks. There will be a global recession at some point. Hopefully, there will be a recession as opposed to the existential crisis that we went through mm. between 07 and 11. And the trick is how, as a small open economy, can you be secure? Now, what's positive is, is there are a number of other small open economies that have been able to do this. If you look at what happened to countries like New Zealand, even within the Eurozone, Other countries have managed this shock. They did it better than we did. And the ingredients to us, and we are grappling with these things today, Shane, Mm. is what's your level of debt, public and private? What quality is your banking system in before you go into difficulty? Do you trade too much of the same thing? And if you don't, at what price do you sell what you trade? The quality of your public institutions. All of those things are the answer. And actually, that question is the single thread that links up most of the issues that, for example, you would quiz me about when I'm on your show in the morning. Mm -hmm. What's happening in our banking system? Why should we do what we're doing with public spending? All of the things I talk about are part of my answer and and the government's answer to try and look at what is this golden thread that a small open economy and society should try to recreate again. And it's difficult. And we'll only know if it's worth having if things develop in a bad way again externally, but by God I believe it's worth having.
0: Okay, let's get to your final book, which is not unconnected actually when you think about it, when you think of uh, what's happened with the economic crash and then the rise of populism that came off the back of that. And I'm not surprised by your last choice because it's something I know you speak a lot about uh, and you think a lot about, the issue of populism. And and the title you have chosen in the book you've chosen, What is Populism? by Jan Werner Muller. Tell us a little bit about this book. It's quite a short, Uh, tight book. So this is a great book.
1: It's only around 200 pages long. Any of your listeners who are interested in this book or in this subject, I think it would ease it up because it's really, really well written. It's a Penguin paperback. And it is the best book that I have read on populism to date for two reasons. The first one is, is Muller offers a great definition of what populism is. And the second thing is, is he butts to the sword the idea that populists can't enter into government and can't thrive in government. Because I think the mistake that people like me made in the past is we said, well, if those kind of forces get into power, they won't be able to cope. Hmm the grinding reality of the trade-offs of making government decisions will sunder any populist party. And Muller says, no, that won't happen. They'll just have a different way of viewing government. And he quotes one politician to sum up very clearly what populism is. When a politician recently said, we are the people, who are you? And the essence of populism is to say that we are the only people who represent the people. We are the only politicians who represent the people. Which is almost, it's quite totalitarian almost, isn't it? It's the slippery slope, if you maintain it, to the slow erosion of democracy. Because that means that if I oppose a populist, it means I don't represent the people. And it is the idea that my power is more important than looking after the institutions of government. Mm. And that's what populism is about. It says that if you disagree with me, you don't represent anybody and that I have a monopoly on compassion, not just competence, if I'm a populist. And this is what Muller describes. And he describes it very succinctly and very scarily because he makes the point then that if you then go into government, what your then agenda is to erode all the institutions that are capable of challenging you. And Shane, you only have to look across the world at the moment to see what this agenda can look like. Mm. And this is a book for our times. I have it in my office. I got a few copies of it. I actually gave a copy of it to the Taoiseach there a few weeks ago because I thought he'd be really interested
0: in us. Did you give a copy to of your? Uh Cabinet members, maybe you're non-Finnegal cabinet members. Uh, I colleagues. haven't
1: got around to us. And I know uh, none of them would fit the definition of populism here. But maybe after this, I might get a few more copies in. So.
0: Do you now share that view that populists can be in government? Because, I mean, there's been examples where it hasn't gone well. Um, I mean, elements of have found it very difficult, like the finance minister. I suppose other elements did adapt. And, and They did.
1: And it's one of the things this book has made me think about is you have to take a global perspective on this issue. And I think we have been too shackled by looking at Europe when we think about it. You spend any time in Latin America, populist parties have been in and out of government for decades now, and they have been re-elected in government.
0: With pretty disastrous consequences. But
1: not at the time. And one of the points that Muller makes in this book is if and when these disastrous consequences do develop, and they do, look at what's happening in Venezuela now, today. Muller makes the point That what populist politicians then do is they blame the enemies of the state for this crisis Mm. or they blame the institutions that they are leading rather than themselves. And we've been down this slope before. We were down this slope just under 100 years ago and it's a real warning to all of us that democracy can be a fragile flower. Now, thankfully, I think it's a flower that's alive and well in our part of the world Mm -hmm. and alive and well across Europe and elsewhere. But Muller's book and a few other writers, you know, warn us you can't take these things for granted. No, And they certainly warn me as well that, you know, tone, how we speak to each other is a really important part of public life now and this is what Muller writes about, so I'd really recommend it to your uh, readers.
0: When you say that tone, do you think the tone has got worse in recent years in Irish politics? It has. The tone of debate. It definitely
1: has, and I think it's understandable why, given all our country went through for so long. Yeah. It's absolutely understandable that the centre of gravity then would shift in how we speak about each other. Does but it
0: help when that happens?
1: No, definitely not. And uh, the creating the idea that if you disagree with me, that means, therefore, that you don't care. That's a really dangerous slope to be on. And I do sometimes feel like we could get on that slope in our country. You know, I believe in public life. I believe that you should have opponents. I don't believe you should have enemies. And I'm well able to look after myself in public debate and within the Oireachtas and within our committees and everywhere. But I think if we look at some of the things that are going to happen in relation to Brexit and could happen in 2019, I keep on coming back to the value of tone. And it's my own experience of these matters that if you get that tone wrong, two things happen. Firstly, good people don't want to go into politics. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the vast majority of people who are out there tune out. They just disconnect. And I think if that then happens, I think we get into difficulty. And that's why Rice was like Muller and books like Dennis Healy are so important. Mm.
0: Although Healy was a bit of a bruiser himself in his day. He was able to dish it out, wasn't he?
1: He was well able to dish it out. But, um, within, a, but within certain parameters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think he, you know, he would have been a great parliamentary opponent. But somebody like Dennis Healy would never have doubted the respect that his opponents would have had for, let's say, Parliament. And even if he would have doubted the policies of his opponent, I think he rarely doubted their intentions. And it's worth reflecting on how often we say about people who are in public office that they don't care. And my experience is that most people who are in public
0: office do care. Mm. They just have to grapple with trade-offs and grapple with choices. Okay, no argument there. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, That's uh, Finance Minister Pascal Dunhu. His top five books, just to recap, The Time of My Life by Dennis Healy, Skippy Dies by Paul Murray, Any Human Heart by William Boyd, Ireland and the Global Question by Michael O'Sullivan, and finally, What is Populism by Jan Werner Muller. Pascal Dunhu, thank you so much for your company. Thank you, Shane. And thank you for listening to another episode of Top 5 Books. Lots more interesting guests and book recommendations in your podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.